everybody and welcome. My name is Tamar Gard and I'm the director of the IAF, Institute of Advanced Studies, which is um, hosting uh, this event. And it's part of a program that we have an ongoing program of book launches. Uh, in our age where people really read whole books and read bits of books and fragments of books and read very differently, we think it's really important to celebrate and to engage in a very discursive and dialogical way with authors and with books as, as, as whole spaces in which arguments are made. And so this book launch was brought to us and uh, we're very, very delighted to be able to uh, host it. And usually these book launches involve a UCL academic engaging with an author, either a UCL author or an author uh, or collaborators who come from other institutions, but really bring these books into conversation both with the UCL community and with uh, a wider community. So I'm delighted tonight that we're collaborating with the Council for British Research in the Levant, and I'm going to hand over for a few introductory words to introduce you to what that is. Thank you very much. Good evening, everyone. My name is James Watt. I'm the chairman of the Council for British Research in the Levant. And those of you who don't know us already, but let's just say a quick a few words about it. We have existed, actually, for 100 years. We started as the British School of Archaeology in Jerusalem, founded in 1919. We were then greatly transformed. In the last 25 years, we've been doing not only archaeology, but anthropology, history, Coptic studies, refugee studies, the whole um, range of, uh, of social sciences and humanities to do with our area, which is Palestine, Israel, uh, Jordan, Syria, and Lebanon. And we have two institutes, one in Jerusalem and one in Amman. And we support um, early career, career academics mostly um, by supporting those, anybody who's got a PhD from a British university, don't have to be a British man, not just got your PhD at British University, and with the intention of continuing your research. We also support research and spell well in their careers. I won't say much more. Um, the website is there to give you lots more information. We're absolutely delighted to be able to help organize this evening uh, and to have these, this extremely distinguished panel. Um, I've, already been, I've already been introduced, Dr. Uh, Professor Rosemary Hollis, uh, Dr. Seth and Siska, and um, uh, and Zahir, Dr. Zahir Ahab. Um, and I'll let, just let you get on with it. Thank you very much indeed. Thank, Thank you. you. And um, thank you so much for, for being here. And I, I do apologize for the late arrival. But I'm so excited about this panel because I actually personally um, struggle with the question of how do we really cover the story. So I struggled with it not in Lebanon, you know, I come from Lebanon originally. I never struggled with this when I was in Lebanon. But you definitely struggle with, with it when you arrive in the UK or when you're speaking to international audiences because you kind of like speak to people who have a different collective memory that is completely uh, distinguished from your own collective memory. So you really need to negotiate that space of where do you put yourself within these what scholars like to identify as counter-narratives. And um, Rosemary is the expert on that. Um, but I think the main thing that we, we would like to hear both panelists talking about is, uh, and I'm borrowing uh, Rosemary's title, uh, book title is, how do we actually survive um, researching and narrating the story as, as, academic, as academics, and also as lecturers as teachers who would like to teach on, on this topic. So I'm not going to 
speak for long. I will give the floor to Rosemary first and then to Fess. I thank you very much for coming to attend this. What I propose to do, having just finished writing and publishing this book, Surviving the Story, the Narrative Trap in Israel and Palestine, I want to say something about that work that went into this book. And we'll tell you first what makes this work distinct, how it evolved, and the evidence it presents. Then I want to tell you what the core message of the book is, which is about how national narratives can behave as drivers of conflict and what I mean by the narrative. <coughs> if there's time, I'll say something about the secondary message <coughs> of the book, which is what people-to-people -people dialogue, not top-level leadership dialogue, what people-to-people -people dialogue across a conflict can and cannot do. And then lastly, which is the theme of this evening, the bases upon which different audiences are disinclined to hear either of these messages in this book. So, <coughs> what makes this work valuable and unique? Two key things. It is the product of a group endeavor. It is not the product of my own personal research in archives or interviewing people, uh, or indeed going through all the other work that has been done on this subject, though that I did do. Uh, but it is about what came out of a dialogue exercise. A dialogue exercise between Israelis and Palestinians studying in the UK on scholarships given to them by the program which I directed at City University, it's called the Olive Tree Program, it's over now. But I directed it from 2008 to 2016. Then I wrote this book as the legacy of the work done by the students who got those scholarships. Those of you who have done any psychology will know that the knowledge and new insights that come out of a group activity are quite different from what one may learn by oneself or in just a one-on-one -on -one interaction with a supervisor or something. Now, in the book, in chapter two, and again emphasized and repeated through the next chapters, and then at the end, summarized in the conclusion, is a description of what I mean by group 
activities producing new knowledge. I didn't plan it in advance. They didn't bargain for it in advance. But we made our way through a series of activities to comparing the Israeli narrative on 1948 with the Palestinian narrative on 1948. The research was done by the Israelis and the Palestinians, and they each discovered that there were things about their own narrative they had not reflected upon before, and as a result of their research, they did want to reflect upon. And they discovered, uh, they interviewed their relatives, they uh, did look in archives, they looked up on the web what could be found, and they were then obliged to present their narrative of the event to the other side of the conflict. And they were not to express their personal opinions. They were to try to describe as convincingly and thoroughly as possible how they were brought up to understand 48, 67, 73, first intifada, second intifada. Then the other side had a turn. So they did this in twos and threes of the same nationality presenting their national narrative to the other side. None of it was about resolving the conflict. None of it was about who they thought was wrong and what they thought was right. They were just trying to tell the story that they had grown up with. And you discover, of course, when you do this, that the same events can be constructed totally differently, depending on who you are. It's not that you leave out facts. It's just that different groups leave out, leave out different facts. The number of dead on any given occasion will have a different meaning for the two or three or four narratives in the story. What happened in that episode was a very powerful experience for all of us, for me and my co-facilitator, and for all those in the room. Because what came out was two parallel narratives, equally powerful, equally powerfully expressed, equally powerfully owned or disowned, because I said there was some reflection going on, by those in the room. And what that meant in terms of understanding the conflict was something that my co-facilitator, who came from Northern Ireland and had worked across the communities in Northern Ireland, something that he calls parallel narratives. Not opposite narratives, parallel narratives. And in the Irish context, he talked about reality is the coexistence of two, two or more incompatible narratives. So let me quote to you what a couple of social psychologists called Winslade and Monk, they're Kiwis, 
They work mostly in California, and they do conflict resolution inside organizations and families, not between Israelis and Palestinians or Protestants and Catholics. What they say is that the normal practice in social science, uh, as pursued by professionals in the field, is to dismiss the stories and to miss the work done by stories to construct realities, not just to report them apparently inaccurately. Rather than moving, they advocate, <coughs> rather than moving as quickly as one can away from stories and toward an emphasis on what is factual, objective, and patterned, they believe there is much to be gained by staying with the stories themselves, inquiring into the work that those stories do, and experimenting with how these stories might be reshaped in order to transform relationships. You can probably imagine that in the context of marriage counseling. Uh, they didn't intend it in the context of war. But I and a colleague who um, was one of the peer reviewers of the book uh, were fascinated by the insight that this could bring to international politics. <coughs> so the knowledge that came out initially about narratives was not something, a bright idea or a researcher, it was the product of a group activity. Second thing that makes this work valuable and unique is that I tested hypotheses which came out of the findings of the group activity over several years with several different groups and tested them in a survey that I administered to alumni of the group activity and comparable Israelis on the one hand in Tel Aviv and Palestinians in the West Bank and asked them all the same set of ten questions which you can find in the book and the four key questions for what I'm saying today that I asked both Israelis and Palestinians inclusive of those who'd gone through cross-conflict dialogue and those who hadn't. The two key sets of questions were, who are the Palestinians? Getting both Israelis and Palestinians to respond to that. Who are the Israelis? Getting both nationalities to respond to that question. There were other questions about when would they date the origins of the conflict, what did they think of Oslo, etc., etc. And then at the end <coughs> were two questions. What do the Palestinians want now? Asked of both groups. What do the Israelis want now? And then what should happen? What do you think should happen now? So um, that's the first set of points that I wanted to make. What makes this special is it's got unique survey data in it, and I have quoted at length from the responses that I got from the survey respondents, 
And the Israelis responded in Hebrew, the Palestinians responded in Arabic. And then both were translated, and I put big chunks of what their answers were, translated into English, throughout the book. Now, obviously, <coughs> in academic terms, what I did on their responses is called discourse analysis. Uh, but I was conscious that people might push back against the messages I'm suggesting are here, so I've given big chunks so that people can judge for themselves. The main message of the book is that conflicts are not just about facts, but national stories or narratives. We all have stories or national narratives about who we are and who we are not, what it means to be Scottish as opposed to English, what it means to be Iraqi as opposed to Syrian. We all have national narratives. And I am saying that the main message of this book is that rather than thinking that Israelis and Palestinians are very special and their conflict is a very special case, I am saying they're no different from the rest of us. Their narratives are expressive of their respective experiences. And I'm saying in the context of Brexit, all of us here need to pay attention to what can happen to communities and societies when they become so defensive about their national identity that they're ready to kill and die for it. Now, I know in this country we haven't reached the stage of killing and dying for it, but I would hope that we could take a salutary lesson from people who have ended up there. Something else to say about these narratives, they are binary. They have built into them two stories, but one is experienced by the self, the other is assumed by the self. The Palestinians are assumed to be certain things by the Israelis, which explain why they have to, they as Israelis have to act the way they do. The Palestinians can only explain to themselves their situation by reference to what they attribute to Israeli behavior. There is no Palestinian narrative without reference to Zionism. There is no story about what it means to be a Palestinian and what distinguishes a Palestinian from other Arabs without saying something about the Israelis. In the Israeli case, there is a narrative that goes back millennia about what it means to be Jewish. Um, and the genesis of Zionism, as all the Israelis will say, didn't start with the Palestinians, it started with the Russians and other Europeans in the contemporary era. Uh, so that is the other to being Jewish-Israeli. The Jewish-Israeli story is about how, against all the odds, in the face of so much persecution, they had to fight to set up a state of their own so that the persecution the genocide will stop.
the Palestinian narrative is of a people that lost what they had, have no state, no statehood rights, and are living either in exile or under blockade or under occupation and are therefore not free. That is the Palestinian narrative. What a miserable story. But they are rejected by other Arabs as not proper Jordanians or proper Saudis because they're not national Jordanians. They don't live in the nation state of Jordan. And the Palestinians are made all too aware that it is their conflict, their exile, and their statelessness, which makes them different from other Arabs. Just one quote from Edward Said to explain the significance of this point about self and other. When Edward Said wrote his first version, or his first edition of Orientalism, he says he was misunderstood. He tells us this in the uh, afterward in his second or 1995 edition of the book, where he says, the construction of identity, in brackets, for identity, whether of Orient or Occident, France or Britain, while obviously a repository of distinct collective experiences, that identity is, he says, finally a construction and involves establishing opposites and others whose actuality is always subject to the continuous interpretations and reinterpretations of their differences from us. Each age and society recreates its others. We didn't have an EU bureaucracy as our other in the 1950s. Narratives evolve depending on the circumstances. Far from a static thing, then, says Said, identity of self and of other is a much worked over historical, social, intellectual, and political process that takes place as a context involving individuals and institutions in all societies. Right. I've said enough about the main message of the book. I'm not going to talk about the secondary message, uh, message because there's no time. I'm now going to conclude with my fourth set of remarks, or fourth, fourth set of points. The bases upon which different audiences are disinclined to hear the sorts of messages I've just given you. The first reason, I think, is that the methodology by which the findings were made, that is group work and discourse analysis of survey data, is first of all unusual and outside normal practice in IR scholarship, as opposed to psychology. And by definition, you know, those of you who might be academics 
and in the field of international politics will know full well that it's jealously guarded community of scholarship and you have to speak the language and you have to honour the hierarchies and you have to honour certain scholarships. And you know, just like Thomas Kuhn says in his Structure of Scientific Resolutions, uh, when presented with something that challenges the received wisdom, our tendency as social scientists or hard scientists is to fight to make the facts you are facing fit into the paradigm you've been working with. And it's only very reluctantly and with much dissonance and angst that you let go of the way you've seen things and jump to a new way of seeing things. You don't progress nicely, linearly, upwards to a new plane of knowledge. What you do is you have to abandon a worldview in order to arrive in a new one. He called it a revolution, scientific revolution. Then you can call it a scientific revolution. Right. Those, the second reason, and I, this is uncomfortable for people, it's very uncomfortable to be presented with something that rocks what you've assumed all this time and has served you well as an assumption. Uh, the second reason is that the, those surveyed are not random or representative samples of the two populations. They are a unique population of 58 Israelis and Palestinians who went through the cross-conflict dialogue that I'm talking about. Um, something like I, it has the figure in the book, let's say 12 um, Israeli respondents, um, 13 or 14 Palestinian respondents. I don't know who they are. Um, the survey was set up so that I didn't know who they were. Um, but they were, all the alumni were invited. And similarly, I didn't know the people in Tel Aviv, and I didn't know the people in, gathered together in Ramallah. Um, but they were similar numbers of each. Um, nobody can go back and find exactly those same samples, communities, to replicate what I did. So again, people will be reluctant to accept the findings of my study if it doesn't fit with what they want to believe and will try to find a way to critique it, they can't have been done properly. I am saying that I didn't want a mechanical public opinion poll, and I didn't want a whole string of people's views on the conflict. I wanted to ask four different communities, two of them Israeli, two of them Palestinian, the same questions, and look at what they said no required answers, and see what their discourse, their narratives tell me. What, I, what can I learn from this? So I'm perfectly prepared to stand by <coughs> this methodology for giving us new information based on what they say, not what we think. But I know that people will find that 
a problem if they're uncomfortable with what they learn from reading these things. Secondly, second reason why I think I've had pushback is that in the community out here, a bit like Zahra was uh, referring to earlier, um, in the British community, I find, um, whether you come from Britain originally or not, um, the passion with which people hold their views on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is very notable. And I would theorize, I don't prove it one way or the other, that people identify with one or the other more strongly. But again, like Brexit and the arguments in Brexit, you, it's, a, it's, it's emotionally held. I mean, it's like insofar as you do identify with one side or the other, you want them to win. And one of my problems has been presenting this material. Uh, a, if you're a BDS supporter, you are fearful that the method by which this material that I'm offering to you was arrived at involved something that they would call normalization between Israelis and Palestinians. So again, it's more important to stop normalization, to stop cross-conflict dialogue, um, for fear that it will undermine the cause of BDS. But the Israeli establishment holds equally strongly to suppressing alternative narratives within Israeli society. As I know from the struggle that some of the graduates of the Olive Tree program have faced, in Israel, um, it's it's dangerous. You do not question the correctness of the Israeli narrative without risking being called a self-hating Jew. To be interested in both Israelis and Palestinians is my last sin. Because if you're pro-one, especially if you're pro-Palestinian, then there's nothing interesting that you can say if you're not outraged enough on behalf of Palestinians. If you're not equipped enough to point out all the terrible things that the Israelis are perceived to have done. I am equally interested in understanding why any two peoples behave as they do. But because I mention the fact and have studied to the same degree, the mainstream Israeli narrative or the contrasting Israeli narratives, you know, religious settlers are completely different from Tel Aviv uh, cosmopolitans, uh, they, um, to suggest that they, both communities have narratives and th those narratives are valid for their respective communities, smacks of pretending the situation is equal when it's not equal. There is an occupied and an occupier in the West Bank, and a blockader and a blockaded in Gaza. So that gets at people angry again, because I must be trying to equate the two sides. I am only interested in human behavior and how 
Our respective national stories govern our behavior. And my final point is that my observation is that if you've constructed an other which frightens you, to justify not doing, not behaving toward them as you would towards your own, to justify that, you have to keep explaining how not like you they are. And that gets you into a kind of syndrome where you have to keep alive the negative image of the other to pursue certain policies and get your community behind those policies. And I have been spending time in Israel and Palestine at least once a year, apart from last year, since 1989. And I have watched the hatred get worse. I have watched the othering get more extreme. And therefore, I think this narrative trap thing, when you're trapped into the only way to be a good Israeli is to fight patriotically for Israel. And the only way to be a good Palestinian is to risk martyrdom, anything up to martyrdom, and to stay put under occupation, however miserable it is, not to escape, not to leave, not to go and try and exercise your talents elsewhere. This is the trap. It traps all the people into a cultural space where they're only rewarded for doing harm to the other. If you want to know what I think has to be done now, basically the two societies have to talk about this in their own society. So no more cross-conflict dialogue in the name of peace. Peace. Thank you so much, uh, I think you've, you've summarized well um, in your final remarks the idea of the narrative trap. But I'm, I'm really intrigued with what you mentioned about the uh, one is um, one narrative is is experienced by the self, and another narrative is assumed experienced by the self. But we will get to that. Can I just say, please, don't interrupt the speakers. That there will be time at the end of the presentations for questions and answers. And Bess. Well, uh, thank you uh, to the IAS and to the CBRL for hosting us and to Rosemary for uh, the fascinating book and the study. And I should just say that maybe those of you who aren't familiar with the Olive Tree program and having been to some of their events and met some of the alumni, it was a really remarkable experiment in what would be or would not be possible with cross-cultural dialogue. And there are really interesting critiques to be made of it, which I think is what fascinates me about the book, is the ability to self-reflect on the limits of the possibility of that kind of conversation and what it does uh, and doesn't achieve. Um, and uh, this is something that is particularly relevant now because, uh, as Rosemary sort of suggested at the end, there's a, a, a very difficult space that people are operating in regarding normalization and boycott, divestment, and sanctions debates. And so these kinds of programs or ways in which we engage across cultures are harder and harder to come by and are under sustained sort of, uh, uh, critique. So that might be something we can talk about. And also, I should just say thank you, Zaka, for... for uh, facilitating this. I was going to say that there's 
uh, a lot, I would like to know about what's happening in Lebanon now. But I want to say a, a few things um, by way uh, of my interest in this as a historian, um, because I come at my own work and, and what I teach here at UCL uh, as somebody trained in Middle East and international history. And I want to share with you something that has come across uh, my own uh, a desk and something that I've been working on because I think it's an illustration of a broader point to be made here about how we narrate this conflict and what is the trap of narration. So I'm going to take us back to 1948, which is perhaps one of the most contested aspects of Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And those of you who have studied it or have read any kind of work on, on, the, on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict will know that the national narratives that developed around 1948 are very much uh, constitutive of this divergence of views. So there had uh, very much been a kind of uh, classical uh, Palestinian narrative about what happened in 1948, which is known as the Nakba, uh, of the destruction uh, of Palestinian uh, towns and villages and the, the expulsion and departure of over 700,000 Palestinians um, in the course of uh, the war, which uh, the Israelis uh, called the War of Independence. Uh, and for Israel, of course, this particular moment is not at all a Nakba. This is the war of a, a kind of celebration of the creation of statehood. So you have inherent in the, in the event itself a kind of duality, that the, the events of the war mean one thing to one constituency <coughs> and something totally different uh, to another. And uh, most of the scholarship around the Israeli-Palestinian conflict developed along this track, that there's a kind of Israeli narrative and that there's a Palestinian narrative, uh, and the two uh, are not really... Uh, talking to each other. Um, and then in the 1980s, um, a phenomenon happened in Israel among a group of scholars, of historians and sociologists, uh, including uh, uh, Benny Morris, Avi Shleim, Gershom Shafir. Uh, and this was a group of scholars who were affected deeply by the invasion of Lebanon in 1982, uh, when the Israel, uh, uh, Israeli army went in, into Beirut in the summer of 1982 under the premise of stopping uh, Kaifusha rockets to the north of Israel, but also as a way to defeat the Palestine Liberation Organization, or the PLO, militarily, which is, 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 is a whole episode we can talk about. In the course of this invasion, the war ended up uh, becoming what some critics called Israel's Vietnam. It was seen as a morass. It was seen as a war that was the first war of, uh, of choice um, in, in, in Israel. And it led a lot of uh, uh, scholars and the public to start questioning the Israeli narrative. And in particular, events like the Sabra and Shatila massacre in September of 1982, which was perpetrated by Christian Maronite militiamen in Lebanon, led to an investigation of uh, the knowledge of this massacre by the Israeli uh, army, uh, particularly an investigation by the, the Kahan Commission uh, into these events, and a whole host of kind of cultural and social um, uh, uh, sort of ruptures in Israeli consciousness. One of the byproducts of this was this generation of historians and, and sociologists who started investigating their national history in a different light. And they started asking different questions. So the 82 war prompted them to start asking different questions, in particular about 1948. And at the time, the Israeli archives had opened up all the documents about 1948. And scholars like Morris and others went into the archives and started looking for any evidence in the Israeli uh, military archives and the state archives of particular orders of expulsion of Palestinians, of evidence of massacres or war crimes that had taken place in 1948, um, and wanted to understand in a more uh, uh, sort of revisionist and, and synthetic way what had happened rather than buying into 
uh, a very classical narrative that all of these Palestinians had left on their own accord. They had decided to go because uh, of the war and rather than the fact that there had been any kinds of uh, expulsions or massacres. And what Morris found and what other scholars found was actually that there was evidence in the archive that the story was not nearly as clean and as classic as, as, as it had been told. Um, and in the context of this new historian debate, a whole <coughs> cultural transformation took place in Israeli society. Uh, there was a, an effort to introduce a new way of thinking about the 1948 war in Israeli schools. And this changed the narrative that developed uh, in the Israeli public. Some would call this a post-Zionist idea, some would call it a non-Zionist idea. But up until the late 90s, in particular around the Oslo period, it had a lot of, uh, a lot of um, uh, traction. With the outbreak of the Second Intifada, with a lot of things that happened in the late 1990s, at the time, Education Minister Limor Livnat decided to abolish the teaching of the new historians in Israeli high school textbooks. And her reasoning had to do with a need to retrench and to tell the public a different kind of story about, um, uh, about what had happened in 1948 uh, as a way of sort of falling in, into this narrative trap. Now, the reason I bring all this up is if, if you are uh, interested in the, the history of 1948, in July of 2019, this summer, there was a newspaper article in Haaretz, uh, weekend's uh, feature piece by Hagar Shezaf, about the discovery of a new document that was opened up uh, by uh, an investigation uh, called the Migration Report. And it was uh, a, a sort of 30-page document written in Hebrew by a member of uh, the Israeli intelligence, the forerunner to the Mossad, during the first six months of the 1948 war. And this migration report uh, was, uh, was entitled, the title of it is Migration of Eretz Israel Arabs between December 1, 1947 and June 1, 1948. And the author of the report, who was uh, prepared by the Arab section of the intelligence service, tried to provide contemporaneous documentation of Israel's responsibility for the expulsion of Palestinians from their homes in the first six months of the war. Now, you can read the entirety of the document. It's available in English in a website called Akivot, which is an NGO in Israel that publishes documents uh, about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And it outlined the different ways in which the Zionist uh, uh, factions employed a means of forcing Palestinians from their homes. And this included whispering operations, to quote the report, expulsion orders, and then the fear of retaliatory response. And what uh, the report demonstrates is that in this first six-month period, three to 400,000 Palestinians were forced out of their homes, largely 70% of them as a result of direct uh, expulsion and whispering operations. Uh, and this was uh, around Lida, Ramla, the Galilee, and the Nakab, or the Negev. Now, these events have been written about extensively by many different historians. Um, and they have been written about, in particular, by Palestinian historians, including Walid Khalidi, a very prominent Palestinian Lebanese scholar, uh, in the aftermath of the 1948 war. And those accounts were based on oral histories. They were based on interviews with survivors of the 1948 war. So Palestinians who had been driven out of their homes and had ended up in Lebanon or Syria or Jordan were interviewed by scholars uh, in, in, in the 1950s. And they had written about it in Arabic and in English. Um, and the point that is made in the article in, in Haaretz is that the appearance of this document has reopened the whole debate about the origin of uh, the conflict because of the ways in which it reshapes our understanding of 1948. And 
it has been uh, a, a kind of uh, a flashpoint because the Israeli intelligence, uh, the, the defense ministry, decided to try and hide the evidence of this migration report. So we have here a debate about archives. We have a debate about material evidence. But what I'm interested in, in the way in which this whole story unfolded, is who we believe and how we believe them and what we believe and when we believe it. So what does it mean that the new historians who came up with this awareness of what happened in 1948 through their work in the archive suddenly <laughs> are believed in the 1980s, or they break open a debate in Israeli society about the causes and consequences of the conflict when there had been Palestinian historians and scholars who had been writing about this in the 1950s. So why is it that one set of people was believed, or the veracity of what they told the public was listened to or not listened to, and the other in a different manner? And what one understands from this is the question of uh, narration and the question of um, who has permission, uh, as Edward Said writes about, to narrate. Who is allowed to tell the story of what happened in 1948? This is the core of the question. Um, and uh, for decades, many of the Palestinians who have written about 1948 and have talked about it in photographs and, and interviews, um, in, in, in books, were not believed. Okay? And then in the case of what we see with the new historians and we see with this document, it was only when evidence of what happened in 1948 was found in the Israeli archive that it was given a certain kind of historical veracity. Now, the job of the historian in this context is, first of all, we work with documents, so we're a bit stuck, right? Because most of the material we use comes from state documents or private archives. And in the case of uh, the Palestinians, we don't have a formal state archive because there is no state. So all the archival material is located in private collections or in the Institute for uh, Palestine Studies. In the case of the Israelis, we have well-developed national archives. So you see already an asymmetry in how historians will tell a story about 1948. So embedded in the actual act of narrating history of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, you have a trap. How do you tell a story about what happened, and who do we believe, and what sources do we use? Now these are things that historians of the conflict are dealing with all the time when we do our research and we do our work. And for my own work, which was about the 1970s and the 1980s, I faced a similar narrative trap. All the source bases, the book that I wrote uh, on, on, on the history of Palestinian self-determination in the 1970s and 1980s is based on Israeli, Palestinian, American, uh, and international material. But again, I was faced with a problem. We have an Israeli archive, which has lots of material from the Camp David Accords and the Lebanon War. We have American archives, we have British archives. You can go to Q and you can get uh, material, but you can't find a similar state account of the Palestinian experience. So how do you tell the story of the Palestinians if you don't have a state archive? Well. Any of us who have studied history know that we can read against the grain. We can write histories from below. We can look at other kinds of sources. We can look at diaries. We can look at private papers. We can look at artistic production, at photographs. We can look at visual culture. Um, and we can try also to locate within Israeli archival sources evidence of the Palestinian experience in this period and try and bring those voices out. So this is what anybody who works on this conflict as a historian is forced to do. And in the end, of course, you're making choices. How do you decide who gets the bulk of your attention in a particular <coughs> incident, who is uh, uh, sort of covered in the story itself? And so I should say that when I was writing my own book, I struggled a lot with this question of who is uh, the object of inquiry? How do you tell a story when you have to deal with these multiple sites 
uh, and multiple uh, uh, actors. And of course, in the end, every historical account is only a particular version. And the way in which historiography works is that we're always in conversation with other versions of history, and I'm relying on X scholar and Y scholar and Z scholar, and all of these come together to create an understanding of a different kind uh, of narrative. So this is my entry point to just say, uh, in kind of a, a few remarks of closing, what were the challenges for me, and what are the challenges in how we even narrate a history uh, or a story of uh, the conflict. Then, of course, there's the question of, well, what is the utility or the use of the histories that we write? <clears throat> Some of us would say, well, the use is, you know, if you're selling books and there's an audience that reads them, but most historians don't have massive uh, audiences, and so some of it is that they're writing for each other. They're trying to find a way to create or come up with a synthetic or more convincing narrative of what happened in the past. But uh, part of it is an attempt or desire to change the conversation in the contemporary world. You want to write a historical narrative, a historical <coughs> narrative, because you believe if you tell a different kind of story, you will change politics. Now, Benny Morris and the new historians are a really interesting example of historians who change public debate. If we think about the Israeli school curriculum, whatever one's view of Morris might be, the evidence that he brought to bear in his work and publishes the origins of the Palestinian refugee population, uh, refugee problem, uh, this became a basis of changing education at a high school level for Israeli society. So we can see a direct impact that the historian has changed the reception of particular events. Now, um, uh, uh, that's a, a pretty uh, impressive version of this. There are other ways in which these critical histories trickle down and change the way people think about the past. We take Lebanon, for example. We have a whole host of Lebanese historians who have written really interesting histories of sectarian confessionalism and have challenged narratives of the Lebanese state to A, implicate the French in the creation of uh, a certain sectarian division, but also to uh, challenge and question the historical origins of sectarianism, to say that a lot of it is an invention. So every nationalist historiography is doing something to break apart a national story. In the case of Israel-Palestine, well, here we get into a problem, as Rosemary suggested, because as you do this work and as you try and break apart some of these narratives, you yourself can get trapped into the accusations of bias, into the accusations of what kinds of histories you're writing and why you choose to ask certain questions. And, uh, and I, I think, just to say maybe a, a closing word about how I've tried to think about this issue in my own teaching, because I know that was one of the ideas we thought about talking about. So, here we get to a very divisive topic, a very divisive subject. Anybody who talks about Israel-Palestine knows that it's explosive in, in many respects. So how do you teach about this in the classroom? Well, one way, and, and this is something I think about, is I don't start with the history of political conflict. I start actually with literature and literary accounts uh, of 1948. So w when you take my course, my students who are studying about 1948 do not read the migration report from 1948. They read an account from Amos Oz, whose tale of love and darkness is a memoir of growing up uh, in Jerusalem, in Mandate Palestine, and then in, in, in Israel. And they read an excerpt from Hassan Kanafani, who was a Palestinian leader of the uh, Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine. These were two very prominent writers um, in their respective societies who are telling the same story as narrated from very different contexts. Kanafani comes from a family from Acre, who are made refugees in 1948, driven out to Lebanon, uh, his uh, tale, uh, uh, his land of sad oranges, is the tale of that refugee experience. 
Oz is living in West Jerusalem, and in his memoir, he talks very movingly about the creation of the state uh, of Israel and the way in which it offers a kind of redemptive narrative of Jewish uh, uh, suffering and anti-Semitism and the emotions behind the, the declaration of statehood. At the same time, he remarks in his memoir that he recalls as the state is created these memories he has of his Arab neighbors living on the other side of the city. How would they have reacted to uh, the, 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 the establishment of the state? So one of the ways I think is actually to move away from the study of politics and to think a bit more about literature or uh, a, a sort of social and cultural interactions as a way stories, stories <laughs> to get at it. Um, and then the other thing is to think a little bit outside of a national narrative. I think part of the problem is we've fetishized this conflict <coughs> on its own terms as something that needs to be studied or investigated as a conflict. But actually, these are histories that are embedded in much larger phenomenon. So they're embedded in histories of the modern Middle East, they're embedded in the Ottoman past, they're embedded in uh, Eastern Europe, they're embedded in communal histories, and uh, one of the ways is to think about studying Jewish-Arab relations rather than the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. So how does the history of Jews and Arabs in uh, 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 an Islamic context, in, in a, a Christian context, how do those change over time? How do uh, uh, the ways in which these communities interacted begin to harden by the early 20th century. So we can kind of take a different approach to think about histories of cohabitation uh, and interaction. Now, of course, uh, the last thing I'll say is that there's a risk in all of this, is if we try and tell a story of a kind of, you know, a past of cohabitation, and I can talk to you about how the Jews of Saida and South Lebanon uh, had a very different relationship to Zionism than maybe the Jews uh, in Eastern Europe, um, there's a risk that you're also, what, what one scholar calls grieving cosmopolitanism. You're just going back to some early days of you know, Halcyon interaction, when in fact it avoids some aspect of what were also difficult conflicts. And that is a tension that will always exist in how we study social or cultural history. But um, I think we need new ways of thinking about the past. We need to kind of move out of this paradigm where we're talking in conflictual terms, and we need to think about a different sort of language. What happens when you get away from the self and the other and you start thinking about uh, histories of cohabitation? Now, uh, it, it's of course uh, very easy to kind of imagine or fantasize about what that looks like. In reality, so many of us get trapped, as Rosemary's title suggests. Um, but I, I'd like for this to be an opportunity, and just in general, to think about how one has to, in some ways, resist uh, uh, the story as it is told or as we kind of receive it and think uh, our ways out of it. So thank you. If I may just say that um, history is a very, very, very uh, essential component uh, when it comes to media studies. Specifically, when I'm teaching reporting in the Middle East, the first thing I tell my students is you really need to know the history. Because if you don't know the history, you're trapped in just being superficial in the way that you tell the story. So, um, and also history is a, is a very important component in the narrative of the Palestinians. So every time you meet a Palestinian, they would ask you, do you know Belfort? You know, they will go back to the 1917, they will go back to uh, actually the, the times when they were living in peace with the Jews and there was no problems. It's as if they are bringing back this whole notion of like, we are actually the victims and not the other side of, of this conflict. 
Um, I'm not going to say much here, so I'm going to open the floor for questions. I might have questions to the panelists later on, but I will just open the floor now. We have... Okay, thanks very much. Um, so we have to take up some of the, the factual issues here. Can I just say, do you want to introduce yourself? Um, yeah, Jonathan Hoffman. Um, we have to, to take up some of the factual issues here. Um, Rosemary Hollis talked about um, the alternative people who voice alternative narratives in Israel being accused of being self-hating Jews. Um, Israel has an unbelievably varied um, media, an unbelievably varied universities, um, and it's simply not the case that you can't voice different opinions, and you're certainly not called self-hating Jews. So um, let's, let's just rule that one out. Um, and then, um, I haven't seen the migration of Arabs. Sorry, his name's Seth. Yes. Seth, I haven't seen the migration of Arabs piece, but I just did a quick um, scan, Google scan. It's been reported in all the usual places, Mondavice, Morningstar, it hasn't been reported in any respectable media. No, no, so it's, it's actually it's published in Haaretz. I, I can... Okay, yeah. Haaretz publishes some... Haaretz. 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 I'll go by home and I'll research it. Haaretz is off, it's July of 2019. Okay, right. The general point I want to make is this issue about facts versus narratives. Unfortunately, post-structuralism, post-modernism has taken over humanities in this country, in the universities, especially in Middle East studies, and we no longer have facts we have narratives, so you know, let the thousand flowers bloom. And this is very poisonous. It's fine for academics, but for practitioners, it's very poisonous because, for example, the Palestinians believe in a narrative that they will have the right to return. They will be able to come back to yes. Israel. Can, can we just please... Um, yes. Einat Wilf, for example, who's a former member of the Knesset, has written about the right of return, and she said this is something which hampers peace because the Palestinians have impossible dreams. So, you know, and this idea... But we, we, we're now also getting into the narrative trap, so please, can we, do you have a question? Yes, I've got a question. Um, look, for example, what Ephraim Karsh is writing. He was in London, he's now in Israel. <coughs> this idea that uh, 700,000 refugees kicked out by Israel is simply not true. What's the question? And the, 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 the paper said, I mean, do, do you agree with me that this question of different narratives is okay. Which is poisoning. So, so uh, can I can I just I'm ask a question, yes. question on your behalf? Is is this whole idea of this is the are question. we substituting facts by narratives? That's what you want to ask. Why can, can we, we not have the in panelists? Academia, why can we not come back to facts and okay. get away from narratives? Okay, okay. We, we get your question. Maybe so. I'll maybe I'll tackle this. Okay, and and here I would say we, we need to start with the historiography seminar one hundred and one. <laughs> we need to think about how how. Correct that you are that postmodernism and poststructuralism have transformed the historical profession. We only have to read Peter. Not okay, we can read. Okay, Peter. can we just keep our language? We can particularly, I'd, I'd suggest the work of Peter Novick on objectivity in the American historical profession. It's a very impressive, significant study of how the historical profession was transformed by postmodernism. It's a very robust, interesting debate in historiographical circles about how history as a profession has changed. There is no doubt that empirical histories or fact-based histories have come under assault by different ways of narrativizing the past. But Novick's point, which I subscribe to, is it does not mean it is not possible to strive for objectivity and to utilize historical evidence to tell stories based on archival sources interviews and empirical fact. 
but want us to be aware that that search for objectivity is going to be a kind of aspiration that one will never reach. Because you can always say that a historical narrative is incomplete, that there is evidence that is not present, there is material that has not been located. I spent a very long time in the Israeli archives and Palestinian archives. I did not get every piece of paper about the Camp David Accords or about the 1982 Lebanon War. The paper is not all released to the public. The paper is classified. So what does that mean I do as a historian? Do I give up? Do I say, forget about it, I'm not gonna write any history? No. Instead, we say we are going to bite off a piece of what we can find in archives or through interviews, and we are going to try to tell what we believe to be, using the rigorous methods of our profession, an authoritative account. I am 100% aware that anybody who reads my book can make a very clever critique of whole host of aspects of the book. And that is exactly why I do what I do, because the entire profession is based on the idea of a robust debate. Morris, for example, is saying that a lot of the traditional Zionist historians who were writing in the 50s, 60s, and 70s got wrong the evidence about what happened in 1948. Morris has recanted. Hold on, hold on. Morris has not. Okay, can I finish? Morris is not. He's he's getting his. If you listen, Morris Morris did a very significant interview in 2004, where he was asked about the implications of his findings about the refugee population and whether, in moral and ethical terms, ethnic cleansing was justified. And he said, again, it's an interview in Haaretz that was done with Ari Shavit. He said yes. This was justified because you cannot, and I quote him, break, you cannot make an omelet without breaking an egg. And he was critiqued by many who felt that this was an insensitive approach to thinking about histories of 1948. Whether or not you agree with Morris, at no point, and I've exchanged emails with Morris about his work, at no point did he recant on the work that was published in his book with Cambridge University Press. His interpretation of what he found did change. He thought differently about the implications of the discovery of this material. And he used it as a way of making a particular kind of argument in the present. You didn't say that. I'm saying it right now. You've asked me a question, and I'm explaining myself. And the point that I'm trying to make, and even in reaction to this migration report, Morris has an op-ed in Haaretz, where he actually criticizes Israel's defense ministry for censoring and hiding documents that he himself wrote about in the 1980s as ethically and morally inappropriate by the Israeli government. So the question is, sure, we can have a very robust debate about the uses of history, about the abuses of history, about the introduction of narrative, how it changes the ways we understand empirical knowledge, but we cannot throw out an entire historical profession because we are falling afoul of postmodernism. That's my only point. You may disagree, you may not like the kinds of histories that are being written, you can choose to read others or write others. But we cannot throw out the entire historical profession because we feel that post-structuralism is too influential in the Western Academy. And also because you might just really believe in your own narrative and you don't want to get to hear the other narrative. But that's another issue. Um, Do you want? Yeah. Thanks, my name is Aron Iftacher. I'm a professor in uh, Ben Gurion University in Beersheba, and this year I'm here at UCL. 
Um, thank you very much for your account. Um, I want to observe first that there are really two narratives about what is a narrative. <laughs> because Seth was talking very much about creating a professional historian narrative, which inevitably, when you gather the fact, like he said, you have to create some kind of a story. But you were talking about stories that people talk from the general knowledge, not historians, people that actually... And emotions. Yeah. yeah. So there are two uh, uh, types of narratives. I think that has to be taken into account. Of course, they filter into one another, but uh, partially. Uh, the emotional, uh, of course, it's, uh, you know, comes from many other sources. And your, what you talk about is archive and some kind of systematic analysis. But I want to, talk about, to ask you about the trap. Because when I came first, and we are all, I'm a geographer, a political scientist, and a legal scholar. Uh, we are trapped by narratives in uh, various ways about creating some kind of joint uh, understanding, which I feel is very, very important to, uh, to move forward in terms of resolution. And this is mainly because you talked about the fact that Israel and Palestine, or maybe Zionists and Palestinians, of course Israel is not equivalent to Jews, but you're talking about the Jews and the Palestinians, not the Israelis and the Palestinians, right? Because uh, no, 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 Jewish Israelis. Yeah, Jewish Israelis, and that's an important because you kept saying Israelis, but Jewish Israelis and Palestinians have uh, different narratives. Uh, yes. No, but it's a very. You said they're like other nations, all other nations, and you quoted a few people. Or communities. Yeah, but I think there is still a different situation that is maybe more akin to Northern Ireland. Because Jews and Palestinians are in the same homeland. And it's very, very rare that two communities conflict over totally the same homeland. Usually it's about a region, right? Catalonia doesn't want the whole of Spain. They want Catalonia, right? The Kurds don't want the whole of Iraq or Turkey. They want Kurdistan. But Jews and Palestinians have the same homeland. This is why I started a movement. It's called Two States, One Homeland, because we think about sharing the homeland. But I wanted to ask you, because you ended up very surprisingly by saying the response to the trap of these different narratives is actually to have two different discussions, which I think might actually strengthen the narrative trap, yeah. rather than coming together and create some kind of a history. And a history um, is, of course, fraught with difficulties, but there is a possibility of creating a history, and a history is about a nation being driven out, a nation being colonized, it's not uh, uh, one story against the other. There is absolutely you know, a condition that has to be resolved. And I think the, the joint story that's held by history and by geography has to be created together in terms of uh, okay. decolonizing the situation. Do you know, um, that is best answered by the responses I got to the question, what should happen? Well, first of all, what, what do the Israelis want and what do the Palestinians want? The, uh, this is the value of cross-conflict dialogue, what I'm going to say first. Um, every single Israeli who'd spent three years in the margins of their degree program talking to the Palestinians, when asked what do the Palestinians want now, gave exactly the same answer as the Palestinians themselves did. And the Palestinians who went through the program gave exactly the same answer as the Palestinians who didn't go through the program. Amazing. And it might approach a fact. <laughs> um, 
what they said was, end to occupation, freedom, and personal security. All the Israelis surveyed who had not gone through the dialogue had all kinds of explanations about what the Palestinians want now, which had nothing to do with what the Palestinians want for themselves. It had all to do with what different Palestinians wanted to do to Jews and Israelis. So it was all about them. The Palestinians want to kick us all out, but some of them are realistic realistic enough to recognize that they can't, so they'd settle for something less than. Um, and then when you asked the same samples um, what should happen <coughs> now, all the Israelis uh, who have not talked to Palestinians personally um, said a range of different solutions which had to do with what kind of state for the Palestinians or autonomy but no independence or whatever. They all had theories about what should happen now. All those who went through the program said they didn't have a clue. They had understood the dynamic of emotional investment in national identity was a factor that uh, can't be easily negotiated um, and can't be sorted by realistic decisions. Uh, it's your identity. And to honor the identity of the other, you have to give up some of your own. So they can't do it. Actually, I would say that the dialogue will reinforce <coughs> national pride in being different. It, 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 um, it certainly doesn't erode identity um, in, in a, a corrosive sense, but it enables the participants to identify personal choices about how to be a good Jewish Israeli or how to be a good West Bank Palestinian. At the moment, the mainstream narratives tell them their expectations on them, the expectations that they have to live up to. <coughs> the national heroes that they're all given are mostly not peacemakers. They're mostly fighters. Um, what, what they're taught is good and bad, and how to be a good girl or a good boy, uh, has to do with defending the national cause the national identity. And so what the cross-conflict dialogue could do in London was free up those individuals who went through it. It doesn't change society. I defend absolutely the value of it for those who went through it. But as is explained in chapter two, it was an extraordinarily expensive endeavor to help young people through this. It was 60,000 pounds per student for three years scholarship. Then there was all the staff support team. And we had um, psychotherapists in the background supporting the staff group. We had, um, we made sure that we um, had held the group, as the psychologists say. 
You have to hold the group. You don't put them into a bear pit and expect them to either automatically get along because they're young, which is rubbish, actually. Um, they, uh, but you also don't want to invite them to thrash out the conflict verbally. And yes, at points, they did nearly come to blows, physical blows, the men anyway. Um, but you have to support them to do this incredibly difficult thing of listening. And the way we would get them to do that is if you want to be heard and you want people to listen to you, then, you know, first fair, you must do the same. But the Israelis could not, they thought if they could only get to the Palestinians face to face, they could explain to them that they didn't mean them any harm and they personally didn't want to deny them a state. Um, but they were kind of forced to because the Palestinian leadership was saying scary things. Or they couldn't count on a new Palestinian leadership in the West Bank and Gaza being good guys. And they would all give you the example of withdrawing from Gaza. Um, and, but then if you've got real live people in a room together and you've got a Gazan Palestinian saying, so I have my people and I have to be collectively punished because not everybody's as nice as me. And of course, the Jewish Israelis, well, no, that's not what I meant. So, and they didn't, the Palestinians didn't trust in the capacity of the Israelis in the dialogue to be able to do anything about it back home. Because they couldn't start a groundswell that would transform society. Statistically speaking, it's only ever about 4 or 5% of uh, Israelis and Palestinians who've been through any kind of cross-dialogue exercise. You can't put them up against the mainstream narratives and expect them to dent them. And then if someone has killed in the name of their state, if you tell them that the enemy is actually a human being, you make them a murderer, not a soldier. You, you, yeah. Actually, that file was 
of the various uh, narratives. And does that say that we have failed, the Palestinians, as leadership and intellectuals, to make it conceptualized enough to have it mature and potent as fast uh, as the Zionist narrative went? And for you, Sad, on what you said on the terminology, where you need to move away from the language of uh, self and the other, people, leaders and, and people are aware, nations, that the terminology is a very important tool to advocate for narratives. So what I think that you're suggesting is terminology should be driving the narrative. And if we move away, we can't leave the, the self and the other and the other. But what do you do with those who are aware that the narrative should be lead, should drive the language, the terminology, and they want to stick to that? Maybe I'll just okay. start. I, I think that they're connected to two questions because one of, one of the problems that Khalidi is getting at in that book is how do you understand Palestinian nationalism? And his point is that it is a nationalism like every other nationalism. If we know what Eric Hobsbawm said about nationalism, it's to believe in what is patently not true. Because nationalism is a construct. It's a 19th century idea. Yes, it draws on wider trends of territory, of ideology, of religion, of language. But modern nationalism is coming out of a modern European context. And his point is that Palestinian identity and Palestinian nationalism, just like Zionism, is a function of that phenomenon. But it is not defined by these other nationalisms. It's defined in relationship to hardening notions of different kinds of identity. In the Zionist case, it's identities relating to <coughs> European anti-Semitism, but it's also identities relating to Ottoman citizenship. There are Ottoman Jews in the 1890s and 1900s writing in Arabic in a kind of uncomfortable relationship to Zionism. They have a different trajectory than European Jews, so it's a complex story. In the case of the Palestinians and their national identity, yes, it is coming out in relationship to the arrival of Zionists to Palestine, but it also is related to the Nahda, and related to cultural developments in Arab intellectual thought, and related to the breakdown of the Ottoman Empire and the rise of nationalism and you know, British and French imperialism. So these are constantly evolving and changing. And the point I think that Khalidi is making is how do you get out of the trap that you only see yourself in terms of the other? Can you narrate your own story without Zionism? Or can you narrate Zionism, in this case, the, the other of Zionism can be seen as anti-Semitism, which is a trap too in its own way. And, and Khalidi's point is you must somehow disentangle this need to constantly narrate yourself in relation to the other because then you are structurally at a disadvantage in the case of the Palestinians because every aspect of your history is a reflection of what Zionism did to you or how you respond to Zionism or whether you see Zionism as settler colonialism or whether you see it as nationalism. You do not exist outside of that. And so, in a sense, the entire field of Palestinian studies has been trying to get out of this trap. But of course, there is a context. And so I'm not saying that you just completely dismantle the self and the other, but you do need to think about different kinds of examples, episodes, histories, where the story isn't so neat and clean about self and other. And the one that I give my students is a young uh, uh, Arab intellectual who is Jewish named Esther Moyal, who was born in Alexandria, dies in Jaffa in 1948. She's writing in Arabic at the height of the Nahda for all of these uh, 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 important publications about her identity as a Jew, as an Arab, and her discomfort but also welcoming of Zionism. 
And the point is that she doesn't easily fit into a category as a Jew or an Arab or a Zionist. She has contingent complex identities, like we all do. We all have multiple allegiances, multiple forms of identities. And the point of the historical profession is to bring out these tensions and to say that you know, nobody is a subject that is one or the other. We are complex people who have multiple affiliations. And so that same thing should be said about the, the ways in which we think about narratives in general, is it's not just some clean story, a goodie or a baddie, a black and white story. That makes three of us who spend a lot of time with Rashid Khalidi's book on Palestinian identity. What I found refreshing about what he said was that he didn't somehow attribute more authenticity to Israeli Jewish identity because um, it can be traced back to biblical times, but the Palestinians can only trace their national story back to the early 20th century and that this doesn't make them any less Palestinian and proud of being Palestinian. Um, and actually, those Israelis who went through the dialogue, uh, when they were asked who are the Palestinians, they would say things like, they are the ones who paid the price for us to get what we wanted. Um, some of the ones who had not gone through the dialogue said that too. But that didn't mean they were going to give up what they got just because it was a bum deal for the Palestinians. Um, however, the ones who had gone through the dialogue did show some respect for the national identity of the Palestinians and for them to define themselves as Palestinians and for that to mean what it meant to them. They're the best experts on themselves, what it means to be Palestinian. But that's um, the reverse of what Seth says, sorry, because the Jews also need the Palestinians to define their own identity. Ah, well, that's a different, I yeah. think that's a different story, um, but because they didn't, Jews didn't always need Palestinians, per se. Now they do, in Israel. Now they do, because they don't want to concede mm -hmm. that uh, they might have been unfair, because they like to see themselves as fair people um, and good people. And it's only because the Palestinians <coughs> are doing such terrible things to them that they had to do terrible things to them. Um, and so it goes on. But what um, th this argument about whose nationalism is more authentic, um, you, you do. You answer that by constructing one that's more authentic to you. <laughs> and changing circumstances. Um, what was a Palestinian before the 67 war? living in the West Bank. They were the ones... Jordanians. Not according to the East Bankers. They were the ones that were locked up because, if you remember, there was a big showdown with the PLO and the PLO was chucked out because they were a national challenge to Jordanian identity. And I once asked a Palestinian back in uh, the 1990s, she and I were having to defend <laughs> the Arab cause in... In, on TV together um, in the context of the Gulf War um, and she being a Palestinian um, some Brits were calling her towel head while she went out to the toilet from the green room um, some Brits this is nothing to do with Israel um, and when she came back I was asking her you know the theory that uh, some some Israelis have, some Jewish Israelis have, that um, Jordan is Palestine. 
And I said, what, what about that for a solution? How would it be? This was in the context of Palestinian refugees from Kuwait to Gaza in um, 1991, 90 to 91. And um, she said, it will be war. It isn't a solution. The Arabs would fight the Arabs in Jordan because they had developed enough of a distinctive identity in 1948. That's when it started for the Palestinians as being a distinct population from other Arabs, treated to this day as refugees. The passports that those who grew up in the West Bank um, under Jordanian rule, the, the passports that they still hold from Jordan do not entitle them to live in Jordan. They entitle them to live in Palestine <laughs> um, with a Jordanian passport, which they value, because it's easier to get um, a visa to go to a third country as a Jordanian, but they don't have the same rights as East Bank Jordanians. So um, th this identity business and uh, therefore your national story, your national story is the source of your identity. And you have to, I was interested in those identities and national stories as internalized by non-officials, by non-politicians, what it meant to the individuals um, who were giving me their, their feelings in response, their thoughts in response to my questions. And um, they, it, their narratives match the mainstream national ones, you know, um, in some respects. But if you ask the Palestinians what they want now, uh, they want freedom and independence. But if you ask them what they think, what difference they think Oslo made, they want the abolition of the Palestinian Authority. Every single one of them. They want it because they say they are policing us on behalf of suppressing our resistance, our desire for freedom, um, so that the Israelis don't have to do it. Um, and far from solving the conflict on a group level, far from wanting peace, most of the Palestinians got out of the dialogue program the fact that it doesn't make them a bad person to want to get out of that hellhole. Can I just say one thing in relation to the self and other and, and the history and <coughs> the emotional national narrative is that the Palestinians that you've probably worked with and that you've interviewed in the West Bank has no kind of, they are not subject to that historical narrative that Rashid, you know, uh, Khalidi uh, writes about, their curriculum is very limited. So these young people only have to narrate through the experience. So their, their national um, narrative is a narrative that based on self-experience rather than based on history. And, and the question that I, and, and the Palestinian had a history before the early 20s, I think. But I'm not denying that, but the point is that the ones who um, um, the, are young people today don't. Yeah, this is the question. How much of, of the history was in the narrative that the Palestinians were actually... Well, I quote all their responses to how far did 
did you have to go back for the origins of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict? And their answers are all over the place. Some of the ones living in the West Bank say, oh, that's the start of the conflict. Because that's their lived experience, yeah. the legacy of Oslo. So it's an argument for more history. <laughs> <laughs> that's my and, argument. And, and more critical history. More and, critical history, yeah, yes. and, and I would say it's the same when it comes to Israeli textbooks, too. Yes. I, I suppose yes, I wanted to say something about an argument not for more history, I suppose. Huh. I come from a different perspective. I'm a, I'm a psychotherapist and psychologist. When a client comes in the room because their life has gone haywire, because they can't cope, because things aren't moving forward, and they tell me about a history with their mother, an incident yeah. that happened, experiences growing up, I don't ask for evidence of that encounter, of those moments. Whether or not their mother did that or the other makes no difference whatsoever. What matters is that person experiences that relationship in that way and experiences every other connected or related relationship as a result of that. What, what enables them to move forward with their life is thinking about that experience and that transfer of experience. It's irrelevant whether or not their mother hit them or, or whatever happened. And I just wonder if there is anything that could be learnt or reflected on by taking it back to individual identity rather than staying on this national identity level. I, I struggle as much with this issue as everybody else yeah. in this room, but I, I do wonder if, if we get lost in history, in defending the facts, as if that has any relevance whatsoever in moving forward now at all. Or it gives jobs to historians, the endless quest to find the missing document. <laughs> no, but I, I, do you want to... Yeah, I, I think it's both. I, I, don't, I don't buy the distinction that it's one or the other. I mean, of course, you come to any conflict with your own experience, and I don't come to this in a vacuum. I have my own experience and, and background and relationship to these questions, which I write about. Well, yes, he, he spells out his personal experience and encounter with the conflict in the beginning of his book, which is... A, a wonderful read. <laughs> They're for sale here. Rosemary's <laughs> getting a cut. Um, the, the, the point is that, obviously, the kinds of questions I ask, the way I even think about history is a result of individual experience. But without the capacity to think critically through history and through time, I have no way to get out. For me, I have no way to get out of my own uh, uh, communal or particular background. As in, history itself was actually, for me, a coping mechanism for not having a fuller sense of the complexity of the conflict, that if you actually read more, and if you think critically, and you investigate questions, you don't come at some single clear, easy answer, but that the act of historical inquiry actually enables you to think creatively and, and analyze creatively. Of course, at the end of the day, we're also shaped by these personal experiences. So all you know, the history books that I love tend to be where the historians have given us some evidence of their investment in the topic. But I, I, don't, I don't think that it's a choice. I think that we're, we're constantly shaped by both. And, and that's the, the heart of the debates about postmodernism, is that no historian writes in a vacuum. Everybody brings the questions. The, the, the difference is that by the 1950s and 1960s, American historians were actually saying what drove them to investigate and why they investigated it, whereas before there was a pretense that you do not insert yourself into the page. I think that's that. That's the, the 
the, the tension. Yeah, but, but I also think with the Palestinians specifically, and um, um, a friend and colleague of mine wrote a book, um, Dina Matar from Sawas, What Does mm -hmm. It Mean to Be Palestinian? And she actually interviewed Palestinian refugees in, in uh, refugee camps in Lebanon, Syria, Jordan, and in the West Bank. And one of the things that, that, that comes across from reading all these, you know, um, um, uh, testimonies that, that the refugees are given is that it's a collective identity also. It's not just individual. So, so the individual identity comes from the collective memory that, that these, these refugees mainly are, are, are going through. There's so much of the collective in the individual identity. And don't you think today what we're all in this country being challenged to reflect on is how we identify <coughs> being British, what it means to us, and whether or not um, we see ourselves as a certain type of European or not. And what strikes me in the debate about the future of Britain and what it means to all of us who are British, what strikes me is that facts are not helping. You can argue about no. um, economics, you can argue about figures, but identity is something that you build for yourself. It's personal. It's which group you identify with. And there is strength in finding your group and being proud to be that nationality. Or and since the Palestinians can't be proud that they've got a state and independence and their own government, they're proud to be Palestinian because they've got s so little else. So the, um, it's, it, in a way, it's how they describe their hope not to abandon their identity. Can I um, take one sentence to the, the It's, it's interesting. It's a global politics that will determine the resolution of the conflict. Yes, but um, actually, it's very interesting. Uh, whilst all the Palestinians and Jewish Israelis that I talked to, or at least that I that responded to my survey, um, I asked them, "Are there any other players or actors involved in the conflict, and what was their involvement?" Um, it's the Palestinians were more upset with other Arabs uh, than with the United well, States. Other Arabs are part of the game, for sure. Yes. yes, and the this Obama, okay. Obama or Trump, uh, pre-Trump, right? Can we just please focus? They they were talking about when I asked their how they see the conflict. Did they see any other actors as involved in the conflict? It means from whenever they thought it began. And I would say that their blaming of others was fairly understated uh, it, um, in both cases. 
Um, and it wasn't as though um, the Palestinians responded, that, you know, there's a Zionist lobby in America and that's, so America's behind all of this. They didn't say things like that. Um, the, so, and I was interested in what they've internalized through their own experience. So, what you're saying, are you British? I am. Uh, Have you got a I British not passport? Say because <laughs> <laughs> it would give the game away. All right. Um, I really, I am international. Yes, I said Definitely. I spent 38 years in the United States and Canada. No, you don't have to say that. It's okay. Thank you. So, you've internalized a narrative which says. years in Palestine. Okay. And Haifa. I just. I am a Palestinian refugee. So, okay. so I actually, I, I, I think your point is an exceptionally important one, which is that, yes, we could spend a lot of time talking about Israelis and Palestinians, but the elephant in the room is that they are not the primary drivers of a resolution to the conflict. It, it just happens I teach international relations. Uh, yeah. But, <laughs> but, but, but I mean, and, and, so, and so on this, first of all, I, I mean, my book is actually about the role of the U.S. and Europe in the question. So I'm very aware of how leverage or the politics of the conflict are not only about them, but there's also a degree to which, certainly in, in the Olive Tree program, but in general, when we think about these communities, there is a need to also understand how these communities self-define and how exactly. their internal stories interact with that global context. So that, you know, if we think about the changing attitudes towards the Palestinian question in my country, in the United States, historically, in the early days, the Palestinians were only seen as refugees in the Truman and Eisenhower administration. By and the 50s, in the documents, and yeah. in all the UN resolutions. By the 50s and 60s, because of a crystallization of a collective or national identity as expressed through politics and through the PLO and different factions, it changed American perceptions of the Palestinians. And that in turn changed the way, for example, Jimmy Carter thought about Palestinians and is the first US president to talk about a Palestinian homeland. So there is a kind of dialogue that is happening internationally, the ways in which people present a particular case and how the case is then received by a Western power. If we think about Europe, for example, the Europeans are much farther ahead than the Americans on thinking about Palestinians in political terms, the Venice Declaration in 1981. So there is a kind of interaction that's happening and if you now want to say, well, how are we going to get out of this, or where's the resolution coming from, I, agree, I would agree that this is very much not something that can only come or will come from inside. I actually think a big question is whose leverage can actually break a stalemate. And so, yes, it is about those uh, contexts. But without the development of these national narratives, you wouldn't have a kind of awareness. I mean, when Saeed was writing in the 70s and 80s about Palestinians, he was told there's no such thing as a Palestinian. Golda Meir gave an interview here in London in 1964 where she said on ITV, there's no, on, on, on the press of ITV, there's no such thing as a Palestinian. I'm a Palestinian. So it was only through a kind of building up of a sense of an identity that had a political history that you could even think about the parameters changing. Okay, I, I, excuse me, I have to... Titled his book, Peace, Not Apartheid. Yes. The issue yeah. now is apartheid. 
Can I just end this? Can I just end? I have, I have my own question that I actually am interested in both your answers is, do you have any unwritten conventions when you're, you know, you, do you censor yourself when you're researching and writing on the Palestinian-Israeli conflict? Do you put a, you know, do you have a kind of um, uh, borders where you don't, you don't, you don't cross? Well, for the duration of my uh, directorship of the olive tree, I self-censored all the time. I didn't talk about it publicly, what I feel, because of this pressure to identify which side you're on. Um, and I didn't want to be on any side. And some of the alumni told me that they spent a lot of energy trying to figure out which side I was on. <laughs> um, and now, in writing this book, the most important thing to me, they're not here tonight, but um, I had two other launches, the second of which was more like a party last week, where it, the most important thing to me was that all those who could come, which in London means those who managed to stay out, <laughs> um, all those who could come, I might, and I'm now going to go to um, talk with the ones in Israel, the alumni, that I was true to the fantastic information and discoveries that they made um, and that, that their, the, the sweat and the tears that they put into doing what they did be honoured and recorded as a kind of legacy of a of a very unique program. And so I'm offering this book so that something different but valuable uh, not be lost now that the program's over. That, that's my motivation in writing the book. It's a sort of obligation. I can die now. <laughs> Who funded the program? Um, it was a combination of, um, it, uh, it was started in the early 2000s, not by me, um, and it got going in 2004. Chapter 2 is all about the programme. Um, and it was a combination of corporate funders, mostly. Um, the initial ones being a businessman called Derek Tullett and um, Mohammed bin Isa al-Jab. Um, I discovered when I got on board with the programme in 2008 um, the timing was lucky for me because I scraped in before the financial crash affected all these companies' corporate financial, corporate responsibility budgets. And the program was originally sold to them as something that would make them look good because it would bring peace to the Middle East. Um, so most of those funders lost money and got disillusioned that the program was going to solve conflict. Um, and I talked to a number of them as to why it might be a good thing to continue uh, funding it. Um, and one small donor said, I can't, they don't work. They don't work anymore. Um, and the others, I realized it depended on an individual in each company um, who, for whom it was an issue for personal reasons. Um, and as soon as they left their post in the company or responsibility for the corporate social responsibility budget, 
um, their successor wanted wanted their charity, as it were, to get the money. Um, but interestingly, and my boss was the Deputy Vice-Chancellor International, um, an engineer by profession, and he was very good <laughs> at university politics. And how he convinced the university to carry the cost of one and a half cohorts, because it was a uh, was that a presentation be made by the vice chancellor to the university council that were they prepared to take the risk of three years funding because you know once you've taken on the students you can't dump them after the second year you've got to raise enough money to take them through three years did they um, he presented them with the moral dilemma of being the council which axed the olive tree program. And of course, none of them wanted to carry the can for pulling the plug, to mix my metaphors. And so... Um, well, to axe is also a metaphor, <laughs> the right metaphor. Yeah, exactly. So it went on a cohort longer than I was expecting, and that's um, another 10 Israelis and Palestinians who've had this massive boost in their career and are eternally grateful for what it gave them in terms of self-awareness. Uh, the, the, um, I'll tell you just to... We, we, to have, <laughs> we have to wrap up, so we need to wrap up. Oh, well, um, it comes from the ideal of education is for the student to move from dualism, black and white, good and bad, into relativism, which you might call post-structuralism, where it's all up to your opinion what is the best analysis, to an acceptance of complexity, to an acceptance that there's not always a clear, morally correct thing to do without trading, whether to be loyal to your group or to manifest human values, that there are dilemmas, that means that life is full of complexity, and acceptance of complexity is success, for goodness sake. I just what need to hear, I need to hear Sass. The convention that I followed was, at least in the work, is the convention of the historian, which is that every claim needs to be backed up by archival evidence. Now, this is an issue because the interpretation is obviously a matter of the author. But what I wanted to do is that whatever it is that I'm arguing here can be supported by evidence. evidence. At the same time, it's clear that you don't come at this without, as I said, a kind of positionality. And so the editor encouraged me to explain a bit about my positionality in the preface, which I was uncomfortable initially in doing. But in retrospect, I think is really important because if you don't explain how you come to something, somebody else will and they will assume on your behalf that this must be your motive. So part of it is also how do you narrate yourself and insist that this is where I'm coming from, take it or leave it. You like the book, you don't like the book, fine. Amazing, all editors do the same, yeah. right? <laughs> <laughs> okay, uh, we would like to just uh, end this by thanking you so much for, for thank this. You. Uh, thank you. And thank you for coming.